Hello, and welcome to the Science in the City podcast, your gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences. Catch us online at scienceinthecity.org. I'm Nadia Popovich. As humans, our ability to adapt to different tools and use them to our advantage has been hugely helpful throughout our history. From stone tools to the emergence of writing to the internet age, new technologies are a big part of our mental development. But today, we're bombarded with new tools and technologies on an almost daily basis. Computers, and especially the internet, have brought a wider amount of information to our fingertips than ever before. But how is this information overload affecting our brains? What I think the web does is moves us back to a more primitive way of thinking, although in a very modern, sophisticated context. That's Nicholas Carr, author of The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains. He spoke at the Academy this November about the way computers and the web are changing how we think, making us more distracted, and in some cases, actually dumbing us down. Hear his lecture this week from Science in the City. As I was uh, putting together my presentation, I was trying to think of a, a good image to kind of introduce some of my themes that I wanted to talk about. Uh, and as I was thinking through this, it just so happened that I received an email uh, from a guy in Hawaii, a guy I had never met, never heard of, um, and he had included a uh, photograph that he had taken. Um, in this, I, I should say this, this gets across one of the joys of the World Wide Web and the Internet. It gives us this opportunity to have these unexpected collisions with information uh, and with other people, like this, like this guy in Hawaii. I mean, he sent me this, uh, this photograph. He had been reading my book, uh, The Shallows. This is the cover here. Of course, he wasn't reading it on paper. He was reading a Kindle edition that he was uh, running in a Kindle application for his iPad. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, and equally importantly, to synchronize their efforts with those of other people. And he said, oh my gosh, this world that this guy is writing about is uh, the world that I exist in. Um, and I think this image gets across uh, the world that many of us exist in today, a world of gadgets connected uh, to this stream of information uh, that comes at us sometimes from the time we wake up to the time we go to bed. Um, you know, in addition to being a great advertisement for Apple Computer, this, this image gets across that uh, how computers have shrunk uh, to the size that we can carry them around in our pockets, how we're often using multiple computer devices today, all hooked up to the internet. Um, and he felt a sort of sense of rebellion when he realized how influential these technologies had become in his life and how increasingly his life was being shaped by them. And this was very much uh, the same feeling that I had a few years ago, back in 2007, when I began the research that, that ultimately led to uh, the shallows. Uh, and I too, by then I had been, I think I bought my first personal computer in, in 1986, so I had, had uh, been, been using personal computers, been using online services for more than 20 years, uh, been, had been using the net for uh, probably 12 or 15 years by then. Um, and I realized that the original relationship I had with these tools, of these technologies, had kind of taken a 180-degree turn. Uh, in the beginning, they were I was very much the master. They were very much my servant. But by 2007, I had realized that, you know, these tools, these gadgets, these services were increasingly uh, the master and I was their servant uh, in my life, increasingly, particularly my, my mental life, was being uh, shaped by those gadgets. And I particularly noticed this when I'd sit down, for instance, to read a book, uh, something that uh, throughout my life had been very natural to me. Um, and I realized that when I'd sit down to read a book or a long article, uh, after a couple of paragraphs or a couple of pages, I would lose my train of thought, lose my concentration. My mind, it was quite clear to me, wanted to behave the way it behaves when I'm online. It wanted to click on links. Uh, it didn't want to go from one page to another. It wanted to jump among very disparate pages. It wanted to do some Googling, check email. Uh, and, and, and I was losing, it became clear to me, my ability to tune out distractions and interruptions and really concentrate on one thing. 
Um, and as I began to think about that, I, uh, it raised a natural question in my mind, which is, you know, is this possible? Could, uh, could a tool really influence in a deep level the way I think and the way other people think? And, and that got me started on kind of two lines of research. One line was looking at uh, neuroscientific work that shows how, or, or at least suggests how, we adapt to tools, and particularly to the tools that we think with. Um, and also looking back over time to see how uh, other tools uh, that we've used, that human beings have used in the past, have shaped the way they think and the way uh, they lead their intellectual lives. And as I, as I looked back in time, it became quite clear to me that among the universe of different tools that human beings use, and it's a quite diverse universe, there's one category uh, that might be called our intellectual technologies. And these are all the tools we use to gather information, um, categorize information, share information, analyze information. Uh, and throughout history, I think, if you look back, even, even back to prehistory, you can see how these tools have shaped the way people think. And one of the interesting, most interesting stories, I think, that, that I found is the story of the map, uh, a, a tool that arrived, one of the earliest intellectual technologies, tool that arrived in prehistory, uh, so commonplace today that we hardly even think of it as a tool. Uh, but nevertheless, there was a time in human history when maps didn't exist. Somebody had to invent them or some group of people. And before the map came along, the way we understood where we were uh, and where we were going was purely through our senses, through our sensory perception, particularly through our eyes, but also through our ears. As soon as we had the new tool of the map, we had a very, very different way of mapping our location, of thinking about our location, thinking about uh, where we were going. Uh, and this was a very abstract way. Suddenly, instead of just relying on our senses, we had a picture of space, an abstraction of space uh, that we could use to get around uh, and, of course, the, the map had all sorts of practical uses, as it still has today. Uh, it helped us go places we'd never been before because somebody else had been there and, and taken the time to plot it out. It helped us establish boundaries and borders and so forth. But I think what you can see in the history of the map is it had a much deeper influence on people's intellects. It made us, made us human beings much more abstract thinkers in general. Um, and you can see a similar change takes place with the arrival of the mechanical clock much, much later. I think it was in the 1300s or 1400s that the mechanical clock really started to become uh, commonly used. Uh, but again, before the mechanical clock came along, we understood and felt time as a natural flow, um, it, you know, something that uh, that we'd measure, to the extent we'd measure it at all, through tools that replicated that flow. So through you know, stone, uh, uh, stone clocks like Stonehenge, or through um, uh, water clocks, or through uh, clocks that measured the movement of the sun. As soon as we have the arrival of the mechanical clock, suddenly this natural flow changes and becomes a very different conception of time. Time as a series of discrete, individual, precisely measurable units. Seconds, minutes, hours. And once again, this tool had all sorts of practical uses. It helped people structure their lives uh, much more precisely. But once again, you see a deeper influence that the clock had as it moved out and became popular, popular through society. Uh, it gave us, in, the, in a similar way to the map, giving us a more abstract way of thinking. The clock helped to give us a more scientific way of thinking. Uh, suddenly, we did begin to look at everything as being, as playing out in measurable units of time. So these are two examples of the ways that intellectual technologies, beyond their practical purposes, can really, in a fundamental and, and in some ways, uh, quite dramatic fashion, reshape uh, the way people think. And if you look more deeply at this process, as it plays out over and over again with new intellectual technologies, you begin to see that every technology, uh, every intellectual technology, has embedded in it what I call an ethic. Uh, 
which is a means that it emphasizes or gives places value and priority on a particular way of thinking, uh, the way of thinking that the tool itself promotes, but at the same time, it de-emphasizes or puts less value on other ways of thinking, uh, the ways of thinking that the tool he doesn't help you do to do or the ways of thinking that it, in fact, replaces. Um, if you, if you think about this in terms of Marshall McLuhan's uh, famous dictum back in the 1960s, the medium is the message. What McLuhan meant, of course, was that the technology itself, the medium, ultimately has a bigger effect on human beings and on society than does the content that comes out through the media. Well, the ethic in those terms is the message that the technology uh, pushes out across the world. And so as a technology, as an intellectual technology, as a medium uh, becomes more popular and becomes more broadly used, the users uh, begin to embrace, whether they realize it or not, the ethic that is embedded in that technology. Uh, and more often than not, in fact, the users don't recognize, at least not in the early stages of the use of the technology, that there is uh, a particular change going on. Uh, that is promoted by that technology in the way people think. In fact, it's very, very rare that the inventors of the technology have any idea of the deep influence it's going to have on the way people think. Because, of course, the inventors, like the early users, are very much, fo very much focused on the practical problems that the technology solves. So the, the man or woman who invented the map wasn't thinking, oh, I'm going to I, I want to give a more abstract way of thinking to the human race. That person was thinking about, gee, I, you know, I need to remember where I went yesterday, so let me plot this out on the, on the wall of the cave or whatever. Uh, but as that technology becomes more popular, it spreads this way of thinking. There's been, until recently, I think, we, we, there's been a sense, if you look at cartographic history or history of timepieces and so forth, there's been a very clear understanding that these tools affect uh, people's intellectual lives and, and their habits of mind. But what hasn't been clear is how they could have such a pro profound influence on people's thought processes, even when the people weren't actually using the tools. Uh, but what we've discovered over the last four decades or so about the human brain, I think, sheds a lot of light and helps explain uh, how a tool can have such a profound effect on the way people think. And what we've discovered is the plasticity uh, or the malleability or the adaptability of the human brain. Uh, it used to be assumed, and I was taught this in school, that the brain stopped basically developing once you hit about the age of 20. So all your circuits were kind of wired, all your neural circuits were wired uh, up until about during your childhood, then when you hit 20, that was basically it. Uh, you didn't grow any neurons, you didn't you know, uh, change your mental pathways. All you could look forward to was kind of slow, steady decay. Um, and the good news is that that's not true. In fact, uh, throughout our entire lives, our brains are, are generating new neurons. They're shifting or changing or, or, or laying new pathways. Uh, the brain is incredibly adaptable. And this isn't, of course, genetic adaptation. It's not evolution. In fact, it's one of, the, uh, one of the characteristics of our brain that evolution seems to have given us, the ability uh, to adapt to our circumstances, to our environment, and to do it very rapidly. And one thing we're very good at adapting to is the tools we use. Uh, so when we begin to use a new intellectual technology and take on new habits of mind, those habits are also become embedded in the actual physical, biological structure of our brain. The brain is, is very good at strengthening the circuits that we use a lot. It, uh, the brain seems to want to be as efficient as possible. But the downside of that is that what we don't use it for uh, is diminished in strength. Uh, so those habits of mind turn into actual cellular changes in our brain. So as we think about the internet, this new technology, uh, at least in, in the form that most of us uh, use it today, the form of the World Wide Web and other, uh, other popular services, only been around the web for 20 years, not even quite 20 years, um, yet 
all you have to do is look at yourself or look at people around you, and you can see how dramatically it's changed uh, their behavior, your behavior, uh, the way you gather information, the way you communicate. Uh, more and more, it's there with you all day long, kind of pulsing out new messages. So what we need to do, I think, is step back from the technology uh, and ask ourselves, what is the intellectual ethic of the net, of the web? What kinds of thinking is it promoting? But equally important, what, kind of, what kinds of thinking is it de-emphasizing? And in effect, uh, how is it training our brain? What, is it, uh, uh, what circuits is it reinforcing and strengthening? Uh, in which neural pathways is it uh, degrading, uh, in effect? Um, I think at a very high level, it's pretty clear uh, what kind of environment uh, digital media in the internet uh, plunges us into and forces us to adapt to. And it's an environment that is extraordinarily rich in information, in messages. And of course, that's, that's the main reason we like the internet so much. Uh, people, human beings crave information. They crave new information. And if you give us a portal that gives us new bits of information all day long, uh, we are happy to keep uh, tasting that information in, in little bits and little bites um, uh, with a kind of compulsive uh, fervor. Um, and so if you look at all of the aspects, uh, the, the, the kind of fundamental aspects of the web as a technology, you see how they contribute uh, to the richness of the information environment uh, and also uh, why we use it so much. Unfortunately, in my view, uh, an information-rich environment, at least the kind of uh, information-rich environment that the web presents us, is also, by nature, an interruption-rich environment. All of the characteristics of the web uh, that are so compelling in their ability to bombard us with new messages and new information uh, also, of course, bombard us with interruptions. Um, so at a very high level, you can see that if our brains adapt, as, as our brains always do, what we're going to adapt to is becoming very adept at navigating an information-rich environment, but we're also going to be interrupted all the time and are going to lose, or at least uh, see a decay in, a weakening of, those types of thought processes that can't take place if you're constantly interrupted, if you're constantly distracted. And you can see uh, signs of this adaptation pretty clearly in a lot of the scientific research that's been done uh, about the influence of the web, even though that research, I think, is in a very early stage. Uh, one, one clear uh, aspect of the research in, in, in what seems to be uh, an important cognitive benefit of being online is that it does seem to give us the ability to keep track of a lot more information simultaneously, particularly if it's coming at us uh, on a screen. And a lot, of this, um, a lot of this research has to do with video games. Uh, researchers love video games, uh, similar to teenage boys in that. Um, and I think it's, I think on the one hand, it, video games aren't a perfect proxy uh, for what we find when we go online, but they're a pretty good proxy in that they do give us this very intense constant bombardment of information that you have to kind of juggle. And, and what studies show is that uh, as people play a lot of video games, uh, they teach their brain, they train their brain to be pretty good at following lots of different stimuli simultaneously. Um, there's been a lot, of, lot made about the benefits of video gaming and so forth and how it does increase our visual acuity, but I think it's important to put that into context. Um, throughout history, I think the, uh, the ways of thinking that we have most valued uh, and seen as most distinctly human have been ways of thinking that involve deep concentration, deep attentive, attentiveness, things like contemplation, introspection, reflection. Uh, it was only about 100 years ago, a little more than 100 years ago, that Rodin uh, sculpted his, his famous uh, image of the thinker. In this, you know, there was a reason that uh, the guy is not playing video games, uh, beyond the historical reason, uh, but is uh, deep in thought. It's because this is an image and an emblem of what was valued uh, in human thought. 
uh, and what it meant, or at least what it was thought to meant, to be a deep thinker. When we look at the evidence of what the web does to that kind, those kinds of thinking, the very attentive kinds of thinking, we see uh, uh, many indications of an erosion of our abilities to sustain our attention and to engage in contemplativeness and reflection. And also, unfortunately, I think, a shift in, in, in even our conception of what it means to live a vibrant, uh, full life of the mind, a move away from the ideal of the thinker and more and more uh, to the ideal of the information juggler. Um, if you look at any of the statistics on the behavior of people when they're online, for instance, you get a good sense of how quickly they shift their focus from, from one thing to another and how adeptly, in many cases, they juggle lots of things simultaneously. The average length of a time, for instance, that uh, a person views a web page in the US is about 21 seconds. And that varies from about 20 seconds to 24 seconds, I think, around the world. Um, and that includes the amount of time uh, it takes for a browser to, to load the web page into your screen. But even that seems to be an exaggeration. A couple of years ago, uh, a team of German researchers looked more closely uh, at what people do when they're online. And what they found was that this 21 second number is probably inflated by the fact that people tend to open up lots of different web pages simultaneously and then they forget about them in the back of the screen as they shift their attention and look at something else or check their email or whatever. And so when they actually measured uh, 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 you know, the visual focus of people, they found that most pages are viewed for actually less than 10 seconds before somebody jumps out and goes somewhere else. Uh, there was a, another very interesting study of uh, email in offices. Uh, researchers went out and first they asked office workers who had computers on their desks how often they looked at their inbox, checked their email during the course of an hour. Uh, people on average said, oh, two or three times. And then they outfitted them with actual tracking devices that tracked their visual focus uh, during the course of the day. And they found that people were actually glancing at their inbox around 30 or 40 times an hour. Um, in each of those glances, it's important to say, uh, takes a cognitive cost. Each, of, each one is a little interruption from whatever you were uh, trying to do. And, you, and the brain can't do two things simultaneously, so whenever you switch between different tasks, even if it's just glancing at your inbox, uh, you, you, burn, you, ha you, you take a cognitive penalty, uh, what's called switching costs, as your mind uh, unloads uh, the old information, reloads the new, and then uh, unloads and reloads again. I would argue that the entire uh, trend of information delivery online uh, keeps moving in the direction of more stuff uh, in smaller bits coming at us faster and faster. Uh, it wasn't long ago, just a number of years ago, that the central metaphor for information delivery online was the page. We'd go to web pages, and you know, there might have been a lot of stuff going on the web pages, but they were fairly static. They kind of resembled the pages you'd see in magazines or whatever. Uh, now we're moving from the metaphor of the page to the metaphor of the stream of information. Uh, so popular service, uh, social networks, uh, Facebook, Twitter, RSS feeds, those are no longer about uh, going out and looking at a page of information. They're about getting little bleeps, little bits of information kind of funneled to you constantly during the course of the day. And again, this tends to be information that has some social or employment value. And so it's, it, it's stuff that actively interrupts you uh, all day long. You also see evidence of this kind of behavior if you look at ice tracking studies of the way people read text when they're online on an actual web page. And what you see, and this has been replicated in a number of, of studies, is an F pattern. Uh, people glance across the first couple of lines very quickly, all the way across, then their eye drifts down the page a bit, and then they glance about halfway across a couple of lines of text, then their eyes kind of trail off, and then they click and they're out of there. Um, and if you actually, you know, if you actually are conscious of the way you look at a web page when it has text on it, you'll find probably that this is how your eyes move. And now there's nothing wrong with skimming and scanning, and certainly we skim and scan when we look at paper newspapers and magazines and so forth. 
But what's missing from this pattern is the pattern that you often see when people uh, read a book uh, or immerse themselves in a long article. Uh, where you're actually reading every line, where you are getting lost in the text, where you are focusing and paying deep attention to the author's argument or the story, narrative, whatever. Uh, that is what's getting lost uh, as our eyes flit across uh, the stream of information that comes at us online. Uh, you also see evidence of, this, uh, of these shifts when you look at um, brain scanning studies. And these are, they're, these are very, very new. Um, so I, I don't want to put too much emphasis on them, uh, but there was one, the, which is pretty much uh, the first brain scanning study of, of what happens when people use the net. Uh, that was published last year. It was done in UCLA. Um, and what they did is they put uh, uh, people in uh, fMRI machines, and they looked at what parts of their brain were activated uh, when they were using Google to search the web, or when they were reading kind of straight text on a page. And what you see, of course, the red is where uh, areas of activation, areas of brain cell activation. What you see, of course, is the net searcher's brain is much busier. There are many more areas that are active than in the page reader. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. I mean, particularly when you look at the prefrontal cortex lighting up, what you see is a brain uh, that is wrestling with decisions, that's solving problems, that's saying, you know, do I want to click on this link or not? Is this a search result that's of interest to me or not? Uh, all, all well and good. Um, but in, in when this study first came out, all the uh, people said, oh, you know, more, that must be better, right? Jeez. So we're getting smarter because lots of our, uh, more of our brain is activated than we, when we read. But what we find when you look at uh, the way we learn to read, is that very young readers, early readers, their brains look quite a bit like this. And the reason is, is because they're struggling with deciphering the words, uh, with the kind of mechanics of reading. And it's only when, you, when your brain, in effect, calms down, uh, when you've learned to read, and you're no longer struggling with decoding, you know, what, does this, what are the syllables here, and what does this word mean, uh, and your prefrontal cortex kind of shuts down, so you're no longer solving problems and making decisions. It's only when you have this calm brain that you begin to see the deep interpretation uh, and the deep emotional attachment, as well as intellectual attachment, that comes from deep reading. So again, the good news is uh, you exercise when you're online or when you're processing digital information in general. Uh, lots of areas of your brain. Uh, there's, uh, there's a theory that you know, doing some Google searching as you get older can, can help keep certain aspects of your mind sharp. Very important benefit. But what you don't have uh, is the calm, attentive mind uh, that you get when you see more traditional ways of reading or more attentive ways of taking in information. What's, what I think is fundamentally going on in our brains uh, when we go online is the condition that psychologists refer to as cognitive overload. And that comes from the fact that our working memory, um, uh, in our working memory is uh, the memory that basically holds whatever's happening to us second by second. So it's basically the contents of your consciousness uh, from moment to moment. Uh, and the capacity of our working memory is extraordinarily small. Uh, it used to be believed that it, uh, working memory could hold about seven elements of information. Now it's believed that it's probably only like two or four uh, elements of information. Uh, the second, the other kind of memory that we have, uh, unlike short-term working memory, is our long-term memory. Uh, and this is where, this is the contents of what we think of, of our, uh, as our memory. Uh, all the things we've learned, all the experiences we've had and can remember, emotions that we can remember and so forth. And long-term memory has an extraordinarily large capacity. Uh, the problem here is that it's only by transferring information from working memory to long-term memory that you engage some of the deepest uh, thought processes that human beings are capable of. Uh, it's only when we form long-term memories that we can begin to weave together new information with all of the stuff we've learned and experienced in our life. 
And that's the way we get the deepest, richest thinking. It's the way that a lot of conceptual and critical thinking arises. Uh, and it's all the, also the way certain kinds of creativity are touched off. And the problem is, if your working memory, if your consciousness is constantly being bombarded with information, that information goes into and out of working memory so quickly that it can never make the transition uh, to long-term memory. Because one thing we, we're learning about memory is that transferring information from working memory to long-term memory hinges on attentiveness. Uh, if you don't pay attention, whether it's very sharp, intense intention, like uh, you know, the Kennedy assassination, or a more prolonged kind of rehearsal of information, you never tap into the richness uh, of your long-term memory. Um, and that's essentially the condition we're in when we're online. We're constantly pushing information in and out of working memory extraordinarily quickly. And we've all experienced cognitive overload. We experience the uh, small capacity of working memory all the time. For instance, if you've ever you know, been sitting watching TV and you think of something, oh, gee, I have to do something in the kitchen, and you stand up and you take three steps over, you get in the kitchen, you say, I can't remember what I wanted to do in the kitchen. It's, it's because, you know, during those three steps, you probably, you know, looked at your curtains or thought of a conversation you had earlier in the day, and that pushes uh, that information in your working memory that told you what you wanted to do out of your working memory, so then you have to sit there and try to retrace the steps of, your, uh, of the last 10 minutes of your life or something to figure out what it was. And that's kind of the, the, that's the environment that we're in when we're online. We're in that kind of perpetually distracted state when nothing sticks, uh, nothing moves over to long-term memory, and we don't activate those deeper thought processes. And again, there's a growing body of scientific evidence that kind of shows the effects of uh, having too much information, having cognitive overload. Uh, this is a study of, multi, uh, uh, of what happens when uh, additional forms of information are added into uh, a learning experience. Uh, so the researchers uh, got a bunch of students together uh, and they broke them into three groups. Some of them, this was, they, they were getting information from a country, I think, about a country, I think the country of Mali. Uh, one group read text-only descriptions of the country, uh, one had some audio added in, and the third group had a streaming video that they could stop and start, as you do uh, when you watch video online. Uh, and what they found was they gave them a test of, of how well they retained the information afterwards. And as you can see in this top line, the scores degrade. Not hugely, but significantly, as you add in more different kinds of information. And equally interesting is that they asked uh, the students whether they found the presentation understandable or interesting. Um, and the people who were getting the audiovisual in the text, the multimedia presentation, found it less understanding, uh, less understandable, less interesting, and more, were more likely to say they learned nothing from it. Um, and this is just one indicator that, uh, that the kind of multimedia that we get when we go online, because it uh, increases our cognitive load and overloads our working memory, can actually degrade learning, degrade understanding, which goes against the grain of much educational thinking uh, in recent years, which, which kind of categorizes multimedia as being rich media. And oh, the more ways you can give students, the more ways you can prevent, present information to students, the better. Well, that turns out to probably be not true. Uh, another uh, test uh, was done at Cornell a few years ago. A lecture class was broken into two groups. One group was allowed to keep their laptop open. Uh, the other group had to keep it closed, and of course, as is true of many college classrooms today, they had uh, Wi-Fi access to the internet. Um, and lo and behold, uh, the kids who's, uh, and then they gave them, again, various tests of, of understanding and comprehension and memory, and the kids with the closed laptop performed significantly better uh, across the board on those tests. Uh, and, and on the one hand, you know, that shouldn't be surprising. I mean, I mean of course, if you're distracted, if you're looking at other things, you're not going to remember uh, the content of the lecture as well. But nevertheless, uh, once again, uh, the educational world uh, is moving in the direction of what are called smart classrooms, which are heavily wired classrooms, uh, more distractions, more interruptions, on the mistaken assumption that uh, kids will learn better when they're in that environment. The most interesting part of the story, though, was that 
the researchers tracked the sites people visited uh, during the course of the lecture, those students who had their laptops open. And there were some, you know, very good students who only went to sites that had information related to the lecture, to the course. And then there was the other group of students who, you know, went to Facebook and uh, shopped for shoes on Zappos or did whatever, uh, did, did all the things we do online. And what was interesting is the kids who uh, went to relevant sites, relevant information, actually did worst of all on the test, even worse than the uh, Facebookers and, and Zappos shoppers. And I, I have no idea why that's true, but uh, what it does get across is even is just the 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 uh, just the uh, just being distracted in that way. Even if you're looking at relevant information, again, seems to short circuit some of those deeper thought processes. Uh, the final study I'll mention uh, was published just last year and is considered uh, the most important study of the cognitive uh, implications of multitasking, media multitasking. Uh, this was done at Stanford. Um, again, the researchers got two groups of people, heavy, multi, heavy media multitaskers, people who spent a lot of time on screens, juggling lots of things, and very light multitaskers. And they gave them a range of cognitive tests, uh, most of which were geared toward figuring out how well you could control, uh, how much cognitive control you had over your thoughts and over your memory. And the heavy multitaskers performed worse on every single one of the tests. This is the result of one that tested people's ability to distinguish between important information and trivia as the number of distractors come at the, coming at them increases. And as you move up, you have a more accurate performance uh, in making that distinguish, in distinguishing between important stuff and unimportant stuff. Uh, these are the heavy multitaskers. These are the light multitaskers. Pretty even when there are just a few things going on, but as soon as you start to increase interruptions and distractions, the heavy multitaskers' performance drops off sharply. Um, again, more evidence uh, of not only the effects of, of, uh, of the online world on our thought process, but how those effects continue to influence us even when we're not online. These were just basic cognitive tests. Uh, what, what, the, the researchers were actually amazed by the results because they had assumed that the heavy multitaskers would do better uh, on some of the tests, that they would have learned some uh, cognitive skills. But in fact, the heavy multitaskers even did worse on the tests of multitasking skill. Uh, they were less efficient in their ability to switch from one task to another. Uh, as Clifford Nass, the guy who heads the lab where the research was, was done, said of the heavy multitaskers, they're suckers for irrelevancy. Uh, they're so used, so trained to taking in lots of information that they don't really care whether it's important or trivial or not, they just want more and more information. So I think, you know, when you look across this body of evidence, and I don't think any one study, and this is true of brain science in general, any one study is definitive, but when you look across all of the uh, evidence, you begin to see evidence of a fundamental trade-off that's going on uh, in how the web is influencing the way we think. Uh, and again, this is common for all technologies. Uh, all technologies privilege some ways of acting and behaving uh, and de-emphasize or even penalize other ways. Um, and I think the best explanation of this came in a, uh, uh, an article that the developmental psychologist Patricia Greenfield, uh, one of the most distinguished developmental psychologists, uh, also at UCLA, UCLA I think, uh, published in Science in 2009. Uh, and Patricia Greenfield's been studying the effects of different media, different technologies on thinking and learning since at least the 80s. She was, she was one of the co-authors of one of the first uh, studies of video gaming that actually showed uh, cognitive benefits. Uh, in in this, this paper, she looked across about 50 different studies that have been done of how technologies influence learning and so forth, and she came to the conclusion that screen media builds, as she said, new strengths in visual spatial intelligence, that ability to keep track of lots of things simultaneously, even the ability to rotate shapes in your mind, all of those visual skills. But the cost of that uh, is that it weakens what she referred to as more deep processing modes of thought. And she uh, gave examples of that. Mindful knowledge acquisition, inductive analysis, critical thinking, imagination, and reflection. So however uh, great a benefit you want to place on improved visual spatial thinking, and certainly an important skill, uh, 
I think you have to worry if what we're seeing is a technology that is eroding our ability to do critical thinking, to be imaginative, to be reflective. And this brings us finally to the Stone Age part of my presentation. Um, what I think the web does is moves us back to a more primitive way of thinking, although in a very modern, sophisticated context. Uh, Fred and Barney, I think, would be quite happy online. Uh, because if you think about it, you know, back in the Stone Age, what you wanted to do was pay attention to as much that was going on around you in the environment as possible. You wanted to spot that predator before he jumped on you. You wanted to spot the nice berry bush that might give you some food. The last thing you wanted to do is actually pay deep attention to one thing, to kind of get lost in looking at a tree or something, because you'd probably get eaten or be beaten over the head with a club or something very, very quickly. So the ability to pay attention, to engage in those more contemplative ways of thinking, to screen out distractions, is actually a much more sophisticated way of thinking that we have to train ourselves to do Whereas this juggling of information, taking in lots of different streams of information, actually plays to a more, much more primitive aspect of our intellectual uh, capacities. And in that regard, it's very interesting, I think, to compare the web as an intellectual technology with the technology that it is increasingly displacing, but that has been arguably the central intellectual technology of the last 500 or so years, and that is, of course, the book. Uh, unlike the web, which bombards us with interruptions, what happens with the book is that it, you're screened uh, from those interruptions and distractions. Uh, the fundamental intellectual ethic of the book is uh, to train us to pay attention. That's what reading of printed works or written works on pages emphasizes paying attention, uh, not being distracted. Uh, we tend to think of you know, the, big uh, the big technological development in the history of the book as being Gutenberg's press uh, around 1450 uh, when we went from books that were handwritten uh, to books that were printed. And, and that's an extremely important technological development. But books uh, in their handwritten form had been around for uh, a millennium more than a millennia, since, uh, since the end of the Roman Empire, really. Um, and there was another uh, great technological advance that I think was at least equally important uh, to Gutenberg's press, but one that we don't hear about or think about anymore. Uh, and that was the introduction of spaces between words uh, in written works. Um, up until, uh, throughout the history of the written word, up until uh, about eight or nine, uh, the year 800 or 900, uh, scribes never put spaces between words uh, when they wrote them. And the reason was because they were still living in or coming out of a very much an oral culture. Uh, and so they were writing uh, what they heard. Uh, and when you listen to somebody speak, that person doesn't stick, you know, carefully stick spaces between the words. Uh, each word he says or she says, they all run together. The syllables all run together, and that's the way uh, the written word looked. And this, by the way, uh, if you watch a, a young child who's just learning to write, they don't put spaces between words because they too are using, are just writing what their ear tells them to write, this long flow of syllables. Uh, the problem with this uh, way of writing is that it is very cognitively intensive. Uh, you get that pattern of brain activation that we saw when you're online because all of your energy is focused on, you know, where does one word end and the next uh, begin uh, in dis making those problem-solving types of decisions. As soon as you had, uh, and it was in England or Ireland, they're not sure who the first monk or scribe did this, but as soon as you introduce word spaces, the whole act of reading changes. Uh, suddenly, you no longer have to have such an active, busy brain deciphering uh, the text and solving problems. Suddenly, you get a much more fluid way of reading, and you get the kind of deep interpretive reading uh, that we all know uh, from reading books. And what went along with this is a, a, a revolution uh, in silent reading. Because as long as you had no spaces between words, you had to read out loud. And everybody read out loud because that helped you decipher uh, what the text, uh, how words were broken. Uh, 
when you put words, when you put word spaces in, suddenly you have the arrival of silent reading. Uh, reading becomes a very individual activity uh, that has very deep uh, intellectual and emotional resonances in individuals' lives. Um, and you can see, even in the very early stages of silent reading, deep reading, uh, this, this awareness that something new was happening, some new uh, revolution in thinking. Uh, Isaac of Syria, Bishop of Syria, back around 800, uh, the year 800, uh, he described the act of silent reading this way. As in a dream, I enter a state when my sense and thoughts are concentrated. With prolonging of this silence, ceaseless waves of joy are sent me by inner thoughts. Uh, all of a sudden, we did have the beginnings of attentiveness, uh, in that when we trained our brain to be attentive in this way through this technology, we could then apply that attentiveness to other aspects of our life. And so what happened when Gutenberg invented the printing press in 1450 uh, is not the invention of the book, but the spreading of the book's ethic, the ethic of attentiveness, to a much broader population, uh, because the fundamental uh, benefit here was that books became much cheaper and much more plentiful. Not everyone, of course, became a reader, um, uh, but you saw that this very, uh, this very attentive mode of, of reading and also this attentive mode of thinking could spread much more broadly uh, throughout the world and throughout society. Uh, and it's this revolution in thinking that the web, I fear, uh, is beginning to pull back from and return us more to the distracted state of perpetual interruption and away from attentiveness and contemplativeness. And I don't think you know, we should kid ourselves about what's happening and the speed with which it's happening. Uh, if you look, for instance, at studies of how Americans spend their days, you see that currently the average American during the course of a day is looking at a screen, whether a television or a computer or a cell phone, eight and a half hours uh, during that day. That same average American is reading from pages 20 minutes uh, during the course of a day. And of course, this shift predates the web and goes back to TV. Uh, but nevertheless, we see the shift accelerating as more and more information moves onto the web. Uh, and if you look at people, for instance, in their 20s, it's much lower than 20 minutes. And the, the reading from pages uh, has been going down for a long time and is going, continues to go down very, very quickly. So we're very much abandoning uh, the world of the printed page and the ethic that it gave us in favor of the world of the screen uh, and the much more distracted, multitasking, juggling ethic uh, that it gave us. So in conclusion, I certainly want to acknowledge the fact that we get huge benefits uh, from the internet and from the web, and certainly as a writer, and someone who can do research online infinitely quicker than I used to be able to uh, when I didn't have that technology and had to go out to uh, libraries or whatever, uh, it's certainly clear that we can gather information, have access to information far beyond anything in the past. We're able to filter that information very quickly thanks to the tools that Google and other companies give us. We, are, we do seem to be improving uh, our cognitive ability, our, our visual acuity abilities, things like pattern recognition. And certainly, there are big benefits for solving problems quickly, particular problems that require you to dig up information uh, speedily. And certainly, there are huge benefits from the kind of collaboration that can take place online. That, again, used to be very, very difficult. But it's important to recognize that the costs are large as well. Uh, there are certain aspects of productivity at, a, at the most practical level that decay when people are constantly shifting their focus and incurring those switching costs that come with those shifts of focus. Um, there's a certain type of deep creativity, the kind of creativity that challenges common wisdom, that takes new ways, entirely new ways of thinking about things, that seems to require deep attentiveness in the activation of long-term memory. And so whereas, whereas we certainly can be innovative and creative online, there does seem to be uh, uh, what I think is maybe the richest vein of human creativity that becomes much harder to do when you're interrupted all day long. Um, there's also a loss in personal knowledge building. 
as we begin to see the web as a, uh, as a replacement for long-term memory. You know, who, who needs to memorize anything these days? Because you can Google it, and if you forget it, you can Google it again uh, two minutes later. Well, that's great, but what you lose is the richness of your, of your own connections in your long-term memory. And that's also the richness of your intellectual life and, I think, the richness of your personality. Uh, we're losing uh, the... Uh, what used to be considered uh, extraordinarily valuable in our intellectual lives, which is uh, times for solitary contemplation and reflection. I'm not suggesting that you know we all want to sit in a quiet room with closed curtains and think big thoughts all day. Uh, but if we never tune out the interruptions and distractions, then again, we lose a very, very important capacity of our mind. And finally, I think we, we, we threaten the richness of our culture. Uh, I think you could certainly argue that many of the great works of culture, whether it's art and literature or science, politics or whatever, actually come from people who paid attention, uh, who thought deeply about one thing for a long time. Uh, and if we lose that, we're going to lose one of the foundations of our culture. Uh, let me end with a quote from uh, T.S. Eliot, uh, and he wrote this back in the 1930s. So it makes clear that the struggle the human struggle with distractions and interruptions is nothing new. Uh, but what I think has happened is that we're losing that struggle now, and we may be ultimately in danger of losing uh, the assumption that the struggle is even important. Um, and what Eliot wrote back then was, where is the wisdom we have lost in knowledge? Where is the knowledge we have lost in information? And I fear that the worst consequence of the web is that it's making us believe, and this is a huge mistake, uh, that access to information is the same as knowledge or the same as wisdom. And of course, those things are very, very different. And if we lose the ability to distinguish between them, we're going to lose something very, very important about ourselves and about our society. Thank you for your attention. Thanks for listening. Science in the City is a nonprofit program from the New York Academy of Sciences. This means we need your continued support to keep bringing you this weekly podcast, as well as the rest of the Science in the City program, like our events and our website. For more information on Academy membership and to support Science in the City, log on to scienceinthecity.org slash donate. And as always, we'd love your feedback here at Science in the City. Send us an email to scienceinthecity at nyas.org. See you next week.